You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. Today we are continuing part two of our series in 1 Peter. Last weekend we started in 1 Peter 1. This weekend we're in 1 Peter 2. Next weekend we'll be in 1 Peter 3. You guys, sharp. So I would encourage you, read ahead if you'd like. Um, And if you weren't here last week or you haven't listened to it, go listen to the podcast, uh, watch the video, but get caught up on this series. So basically, Peter wrote this letter. Uh, He wrote it around 63 AD. He was in Rome and he's writing to uh, churches and Christians that are in what, what would now be Northern Turkey. And he's writing to them, and these are non-Jewish believers for the most part, non, they're Gentiles. And he's writing to them to encourage them in the face of persecution. So around this time, Nero was the emperor of Rome and uh, there was not state-sanctioned persecution of Christians, but there was cultural persecution of Christians. So the world they lived in was combative toward people of faith, and they were standing up in the face of this. So what he was doing is he's writing letters to them to help them figure out how to be resilient in the face of opposition and resilient in the face of setbacks and resilient in the face of persecution. Now, what we deal with as people of faith today is not the same as what they dealt with then, um, but there is a cultural pushback in many ways against people of faith um, because people of faith are looked at as narrow-minded or bigots or different things. Uh, churches are called and there's claims against churches. Um, and so I think this series can be helpful for you too, because maybe you don't face direct persecution, but you feel pressure when you go to work to say the right things or not say the wrong things. Uh, how do you stand up for your faith? When somebody gives you a hard time about your faith, what does that look like? And so hopefully this series will be helpful for you as well. So as we finished 1 Peter 1, 1 last week, Peter was finishing the chapter with this idea that we should live our lives for the eternal and not the temporary. That there are eternal things that we should be living for and looking for and not the temporary things. And so this is where we pick up in 1 Peter 2, 1, and it says this. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all kind uh, and all unkind speech. So let me stop there. What he's saying is, He says, because we are living for eternity and not for the temporary, live this way. Put away all evil. And then he names some evil. And I don't know about you, when I read this, though, it doesn't seem that evil. It's deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech. That doesn't measure up to real evil, right? Like when I think of evil, I think of murder. Murder is real evil, right? Um, But this, like unkind speech, like that's a Tuesday, right? Like that's... That's, we live in that kind of culture where we say unkind things all the time. And, and this is what Peter is saying to the church. He's saying, hey, do away with all evil. And you know what evil is. And here are some things that are evil that you don't qualify as evil. And he says, deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, unkind speech. These are evil things that sometimes we minimize and go, well, that's not that bad. But Peter says, no, no, no. If we're living with eternity in mind, if we're living as followers of Jesus, people who want to be resilient in the face of persecution, we have to be done with all evil. 
We have to get rid of it from our lives. Then in verse two, he says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Crave pure spiritual milk so you can mature, so you can grow the way you're supposed to grow into the full experience of salvation. He says, cry out for this nourishment now that you've had a taste of the Lord's kindness. He says, cry out for this kind of nourishment now that you've tasted the Lord's kindness. So once we taste the kindness of God, what Peter is saying is we shouldn't hunger for anything else, but we do. So often, we, we taste the kindness of God, but we keep going back to other things because we forget, oh yeah, this is really good. I, I forgot how kind God is. I forgot how good he is. So what happens? We drift to other things. Uh, there's a video, I think, that illustrates this idea perfectly. I want you to take a look right now. Ice cream for her birthday party. Legally, <laughs> 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 let go. Let go. Let go. <laughs> you got a helping Brittany. <laughs> That wasn't even Meadows, that was Baskin Robbins. <laughs> that baby, I love that. Did you see her reaction? When she, she's like, I don't know if I want this. And then she tastes it and her eyes go big like, oh my gosh, what have you guys been putting in my mouth? This is what I need, right? And then the baby like leans in and she grabs it with both fingers. I gotta be honest, there's a few times I've eaten ice cream that I've felt that excited about it where I wanted to like, I don't care, right? But it squishes through her pudgy little fingers and they're saying, let go, let go. And she's like, uh-uh, no, sir, never again. Where has this been my whole life, right? And this this, this little girl, this baby who can't even articulate it, she gets a taste of this ice cream and she says, I don't even know what this is. I just know I want it. And she is singularly focused. The people around her are going, hey, what do you, stop, hey. And they're trying to clean her up and they're trying to pull her away. And they're trying, but she does not care. All she cares about is this one thing. She has gotten a taste and now that's all she wants. And for us, when we taste the kindness of God, we should have a singular focus in our lives that we say, I don't care what the people around me are saying. I don't care what, what, what else is going on. I know what I need and where has this been my whole life? I, I need this in my life. I need the kindness of God. I need the goodness of God. I need this on a regular basis. And Paul, uh, Peter is saying to the church, now that you've experienced it, cry out for this. Why would you ever want anything else? But we do. We'll come back to that idea in a moment. He goes on to say in verse four, you're coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And I am grateful that we can be rejected by people, but selected by God for great honor. That, that people can reject us, and that does not end our story, that God can still select us. And this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus was rejected by, by the Jewish people of that day. They rejected him as savior, and he was to be the cornerstone and they rejected him. And it goes on to say in verse five, 
He says, you are living stones that God is building into the spiritual temple. He says, you are living stones that God is forming into the temple, the spiritual temple. And he says, Jesus is the spiritual cornerstone. And so maybe you've heard people say things like, well, the church isn't a place. The church is the people. And most people would go, oh yeah, that's right. Church is the people, not the place. But we get stuck on places all the time. Because church is a place, that's where we go. Um, but, but what Peter is saying to them is, no, 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 church is not about the location. It's not about a structure. It's not about a building. It is about the people that occupy the building. It is about the, the living stones that we are when we are set on Christ as our foundation. When he's the cornerstone, God arranges us as living stones to build his church. So you and I are the church. This building is not the church. So when we have people who get hurt, get disappointed, get upset, and they leave, it's like pulling a stone out of a structure. There's an absence, there's a void there. It's a problem. He goes on to say this in verse five. He says, what's more, you are his holy priests. So he says, you are living stones that God is using to build a spiritual temple. But then he says, you are holy priests. So let me make sure you understand this. He's not talking to Jewish people. He's talking to Gentiles, unbelievers. And he's saying, you are holy priests. So I'm gonna revisit this idea with you in verse nine. So we'll come back to it in a second. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As scripture says, and then he quotes Isaiah 28, he says, God says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. So he's talking about putting our trust in Jesus and how we will never be disgraced by that. And he goes on to say in verse seven, yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected will now become the cornerstone. So he's saying here we have a choice. We get to choose how to build our lives and what the structure of our lives look like. And if we choose Christ, he becomes the cornerstone of our lives. And Jesus talks about this idea in his ministry several times. And we see this idea throughout scripture. We see it in the book of Ephesians. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it over and over and over. Uh, but in Luke chapter six, Jesus talks about this idea a little bit. Um, and there's a group of people that are with Jesus. He's been teaching and these are his followers. And listen to what he says. This is Luke six forty six. He says, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Now, we think Jesus is soft and cozy and gentle and easy and, oh, Jesus, he's just, oh, right? Like, oh, he's just, he's, he's a great friend and he's just, he's nice and kind and he is those things. But Jesus also had a little edge to him. Did you know that? Jesus was confrontational. And he, he, he was confronting people here. He was confronting people that were living um, they, were, they were hypocrites. They were living hypocritically. He said, Wait, why do you keep calling me Lord, but you don't do what I ask you to do? You say I'm Lord, but I'm not Lord. So why do you keep doing that? 
And then he says, I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. So he said, I'll show you how good it is when you call me Lord and actually do what I ask you to do. He says this, it's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the flood waters rise and break against the house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against this house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you build your house with the right foundation, which is Jesus as the cornerstone. He says, if you build your house on the right foundation, you're not exempt from storms. Storms will still come and they will batter your home. And it may be hard, but the foundation will hold your home in place. Your house that's built on the right foundation will stand in the face of a storm. It doesn't mean you won't have storms. It just means you will survive the storm. But he says the person who builds their home right on the ground, they're gonna be in trouble. See, when you build a home without the right foundation, you don't know your home is in trouble till the storm comes. And when the storm comes, that's when you realize this was a big mistake. See, when you build your home Without that foundation, when it's just built on the ground, it may look great. Your life looks good. It it looks like it's all put together. You look like you know what you're doing. You look like you're a solid human, right? Okay, they're doing well. But if it's not built on the right foundation, the storms come. They will come. And when they come, they will decimate your house. And now you'll be wondering what to do next. And Jesus says... He said, the person who hears what I tell them and obey it, they're the person who builds a foundation on their, under their home. They start with the right foundation. He uses this metaphor over and over and over again as the chief cornerstone. Uh, Peter has already mentioned Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but he actually, this is a callback to Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, after the day of Pentecost, um, the Holy Spirit is given to the church and Peter preaches this incredible word. And one of the things he talks about is uh, this idea. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that chief cornerstone is Jesus, whom you crucified. And, And this is how he approaches this. He understands that the foundation for our lives is Jesus. Now, today we build foundations with concrete for the most part. We just pour concrete. Um, In Jesus' day and age, they would use stones. And the most important part of the foundation was the cornerstone. And if you got the cornerstone right, then everything else would be good if you measured correctly because the cornerstone was the standard for the rest of the foundation. This cornerstone was important because you would lay that and then you would measure everything else according to that one standard. And this is where it's so important because Jesus is the one objective standard for us in our lives. We live in a world with no standards. We live in a world that says, live however you want, whatever makes you feel good. Um, Every road leads to God. and, And that is just, that's false. It's not true. And when we say Jesus is my standard, he is the cornerstone of my foundation, what we're saying is he is the standard for my life. I I don't get to live 
however I want and do whatever I want because Jesus is my standard and my filter for my life. In verse eight, Peter goes on to say this. He says, and he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. He's quoting Isaiah verse, uh, chapter eight. It says, they stumble because they do not obey God's word, so they meet the fate that was planned for them. So what he's saying is Jesus is the stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But if we reject him as our cornerstone, he becomes a stumbling block. So Jesus makes us stumble, which doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right, but let me explain this. Um, I know you're not supposed to talk about religion in like, like, normal conversation. It gets weird sometimes, but you can talk about religion, faith. You can talk about faith. People don't mind saying, yeah, I'm a person of faith. I, I pray. Um, you can even talk about God and people are okay talking about God because God is subjective. Your view of who God is might be very different than mine, especially if we go into the world and start having conversations about God. We have shaped God into our image. So people don't really mind talking about God, but I'm telling you, if you wanna make things weird, start talking about Jesus. <laughs> people get real weird when you start talking about Jesus. <laughs> if you don't believe me, um, people will talk about God, but they, they shut up real quick when you start talking about Jesus. So I fly quite a bit and... Um, and there's some things you can do. I fly Southwest, it's open seating. So there's some things you can do to uh, protect yourself from somebody sitting next to you, by the way. You can, like, I like to cough a lot as people are getting on the plane, just <coughs> like, oh, oh, right? I don't mind that. I've got like a 98% success rate on open seats next to me. Because if you're getting on a plane and you're needing to stretch out a little, do you think you want to sit next to me for real? Probably not. But if somebody does happen to sit next to me on a plane, if I don't want to talk to them, one of the very first things I can do is after they sit down and they get buckled, I just turn them and go, can I talk to you about Jesus? Oh, I'm so sorry. And the earbuds go in and that's the end of the conversation. I got quiet the rest of the flight. I don't have to talk. They're not gonna ask me about my day, what I do, nothing. It's not gonna happen. Why? Because people don't like talking about Jesus. It gets weird. Now, I really don't do that on planes. I don't mind talking about Jesus on plane rides with people. But I will tell you too, when they find out I'm a pastor or a preacher, that gets weird sometimes too. It's like, oh, well, we're done talking now. <laughs> like that's the end of it. Why? Well, because Jesus is restrictive. Jesus restricts us. And let me explain this idea. Um, so we've got the greatest gospel, the greatest good news ever. And that good news is Jesus loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. No matter who you are, Jesus loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. That's the good news. God sent Jesus into this world to pay the price for your sin and my sin on the cross. That's good news. But the bad news is when we come into relationship with Jesus, he says, hey, I've got life for you, but you have to die to receive this life. You've got to lay some things down. You've got to give some things up. What you're laying down is worse than what you're getting. I'm giving you something better than what you're laying down, but something has to die. See, Jesus restricts us. You, you can't 
continue with this line of behavior, this line of thinking, you, with your affections ordered the way they are, it's got to change. And the good news is Jesus will do it for us, but it's still going to cost us something. See, Jesus is restrictive. It will cost us to follow him. In fact, it may cost us our lives. So people don't like talking about Jesus. Jesus becomes a stumbling block for many people. They like God. They struggle with Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you're not like that. For you're a chosen people, a royal uh, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So earlier in verse five, I mentioned that we are, we are holy priests. And here again, it says, you're a chosen people, you're a royal priests, a holy nation. And he's not talking to Jewish people, he's talking about Gentile people. He's saying, now you are grafted in. Once it was the Jewish people who were chosen, but now we are chosen together to be sons and daughters of God. And he says, you are holy priests. You are royal priests. Nobody seems excited about that. I thought you'd be excited. You're like, yes, sign me up. I'm ready, right? So, so here's the thing. I talk to people all the time who say things like, well, now I could never do what you do. Well, why not? Well, I just, I'm not. And what we have is a spiritual hierarchy where we go, okay, we got like God is here and then like maybe the Pope and then Kim and then Mel. Like that's how this is ordered, right? And then I'm down here somewhere. I don't know where I'm at, but they're at a separate tier from me. And I wanna, I wanna help you with something. Are you ready? Um. I don't have a phone in my office. You remember the bat phone on the old Batman and the commissioner could pick up the phone and ring Batman directly, whether he was in the car or wherever he was. I don't have one of those phones in my office. So when you go, hey, Mel, I've got this need. I'm like, I got this. And I'm like, God, are you there? It's like, I am, Mel. I was waiting on this call. I'm so glad. Like, I don't have access that you don't have. Did you know that? You have just as much access as I do to God but we don't live that way. You live as if your small group leader has more access than you do. You live as if the pastor has more access than you do. Uh, in, in Blairsville, they live as if, well, Pastor Colin has more access. My, the small group leaders, the prayer team, they don't. Do you know why? I've got good news. Because you are a holy royal priest. We don't live like it. We don't act like it. See, it says we are a holy priest and holy um, means set apart. So you are set apart. And the priests were a separate class of people. The priests could access God where the normal people could not. The priests had access to holy things. They could handle holy things when normal people could not. And now Peter says, hey, guess what? You are holy priests. You are set apart and you are priests. And it's not just a class of people. We are all invited to this class of people. And then he reiterates this idea. He says, you're a royal priest. And you know what he's saying here? There's this implication of kingship. That, that we are not just priests, but we are royal priests. We have authority because we are sons and daughters of the king. So now we have authority that we are not living in because we think, well, I can't be a starter on the team. I'm just JV. 
Well, I could never do that because I'm just. See, we fail to live up to our identity because we don't truly believe that's who we are. There's so much kingdom potential just at Summit Church this weekend. There's so much kingdom potential, but we are not fulfilling that potential. Do you know why? Because you don't believe that you are a royal holy priest. You don't believe that you are just as called as I am. You don't believe you have just as much access to God the Father as I do. But you do. What if you and I, we all started living collectively with this idea that we are all called, that we are all empowered, that we can all do what Jesus has asked us to do. That there is a purpose and plan that God has for us. There are good works that God made for us in advance for us to live out, that he's invited us into, that we can actually do because we are holy royal priests. The problem is we don't live that way. We don't believe that way. We are empowered, but we don't live empowered. We have access, but we don't live with that access. And it's interesting because he supports this idea in verse 9 with this verse 10. In, second, in 1 Peter 2.10, he mentions this, this story that would be very known to the people that were reading this. And it's the story of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet. And God told him to marry a prostitute. And Hosea's like, well, what was that? He's like, yeah, go marry that prostitute. He's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like the PR for that seems like it might be messy. How am I gonna explain that? And God's like, don't worry about it. You just go do it. And, and this is what Peter says about that. He, he quotes Hosea in 1 Peter 2.10. He says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. And this is taken from the story of Hosea with this woman, this prostitute. And it's, it's uh, her name is Gomer, by the way. Somebody decided that was a good name for a child, Gomer. And it just makes me sad for her. The worst part, it wasn't even that she was a prostitute. It's her name was Gomer. <sighs> I'm just kidding. So her name's Gomer. And here's basically what happened. Here's the, the short version. God said, go marry this prostitute. So what he did is he literally bought her out of the, the, the sex trade, the sex slave industry. He literally bought her out of this industry and he redeemed her. This is literally what it was called. He redeemed her out of this. He bought her out of this to make her his wife. And he brought her to a home and she found acceptance and unconditional love. And they had children together, but over and over and over in the story, she keeps going back to her old life. And Hosea has to keep going to her and rescuing her out of this old life and going, no, 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 this is not who you are. I love you. You are my beloved. You're my wife. This isn't who you are. Why do you keep going back to this life? And Peter references this because that's who we are. We are Gomer. Jesus has purchased us out of slavery to sin. He has bought us out of slavery. He has made us his bride. He's given us stability in a home and unconditional love. And we have a new identity. We are royal holy priests. We go, well, that's not who we are though. I mean, I'm this. See, Gomer couldn't get past who she was to, to get a hold of who she is. See, Hosea said, no, 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 that's not who you are. That's who you were. This is who you are now. She said, okay, that's fine. But she was going, no, 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 but that's who I am. That's what I know. That's what I'm comfortable with. 
So she kept drifting back to this thing. She kept going back to it because her heart was, was tied, was yoked to it. And here's the problem. When you hear things like, you are a royal holy priest, you're like, okay. But your hearts are yoked to who you were. But yeah, I can't. But you know what? We've got this history of, of divorce in my family. So that's just what it's gonna be. We've got a history of abuse. We've got a history of alcoholism. We've got a history of addiction. And that's just what it's gonna be. We are not victims. Scripture says we are conquerors. And it's not because I'm so good, I can conquer. It's because Christ is in me, we can conquer. Because we are holy, royal priests. We are empowered by God. We have access to the King. Why in the world would we live below our potential other than the fact that we forget how good it is to taste the goodness of God? We've forgotten. We've drifted away from it and other things have satisfied us. But if we could just remember how good it is to taste his kindness, why would anything else ever satisfy us? This is a blanket statement, but it's true for every single one of you and me included. You are leaving some of your kingdom potential on the table because you refuse to walk in your identity as a holy royal priest. There are people in your world that need you to step into your place as a holy royal priest and stop playing small. Stop playing the victim and start identifying with who God identifies you as. Let me go on. I'm glad my wife's here. She likes my preaching. I gotta be honest with you. It's gonna get worse. If you're uncomfortable, it's about to get worse. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. He uses this language again that we used last week in chapter one. He calls us temporary residents. He calls us foreign nationals. And what he's saying is, uh, you're not residents of the places you actually live. You're actually residents of heaven. As, as children of God, your primary identity is as a son or daughter of God. We are citizens of heaven. If we had a passport, it would not be US, United States of America, it would be heaven. That's our primary identity. Before we are men or women or our ethnicity or our nationalities or before I'm an American or before I'm any of those things, I am first and foremost, I am a child of God. So he says, you're a temporary residence. He says in verse 12, be careful to live properly among unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. See, sometimes... We elevate our behavior when we're around Christians. There was an old song years ago, um, a Christian song called Hide the Beer, the Pastor's Here, and, which I think is hilarious. It was, uh, do you know, it was the 77s? Do you have any idea? Oh, well, my music, I thought you would know, Vance. It's okay. So, but the idea of this song was, we gotta elevate our behavior because other Christians are here, specifically the pastor, right? So we gotta raise our standard. But this is the opposite of what Peter says. Peter actually says, you gotta raise your standard around unbelievers. We tend to drift down when we're around unbelievers. Well, I can let my guard down. I can say some things I normally wouldn't say. I can consume some things I normally wouldn't consume. I can go because it's not that big a deal. They're not gonna judge me, it's okay. And Peter says, no, 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 don't do that. You actually raise the standard of your behavior when you're around unbelievers. You don't lower it because then you will live honorably around people and they will give honor to God. Verse 13, this is where it gets rough. 
For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether kings as head of state, as officials, as he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Now, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time here because I spent a lot of time on this idea back in the fall. Uh, it was back in November, around election time, ironically. Uh, we were in the book of Romans and we talked about this idea of what does it mean to submit to earthly authority? And, and I wanna make this clear. Um, Peter and Paul, they were at odds about a lot of different things, but this is something they agreed with. This is something we see the apostle Paul say over and over and over and over again, that we should submit to human authority, submit to governmental authority, submit to people who are in leadership above us. Peter says the same thing, submit to all human authority. And, and if you look at what he's saying, he says, whether the king is the head of state, so he's saying the head of state, which in our context would be the president, and then he says, or the officials he's appointed, what he was talking about is local rulers, which in our case would be like a governor. And do you, do you know what Peter is saying to you? Submit to Joe Biden and to Josh Shapiro. Some of you really liked my sermon until just then, didn't you? You're like, yeah, you lost me. Like, no, I didn't vote for them. The Bible doesn't say, unless you didn't vote for them. If you didn't vote for them, then don't worry about submission. It doesn't say, if you don't like them, you don't have to worry about submission. If you disagree with them, you don't have to worry about submission. It says submit to all human authority. All governmental officials is what it's saying. And we struggle with this. We struggle with submission across the board. Let's just be honest. We don't submit very easily as humans because especially as Americans, we've been taught to be fiercely independent. And nobody's gonna tell us what to do. And we're strong, but we struggle with submission. I talk to enough of you that hate your bosses that I can understand that we struggle with submission. Because the Bible doesn't say only submit to good people, only submit to honorable people, only submit to nice people, this is submit. See, our job is not to fix every person who's in authority over us. Our job is to make sure our hearts are right as we are submitted to them. So let me support this idea just, to, just for just a second. Um, Peter and Paul both agreed on this idea. And Peter and Paul both said over and over and over, submit to the authority. And they would call out kings or rulers, whatever. Um, and both of them, were martyred by Nero, who was the emperor of Rome when they wrote these things. And I do not believe that if they knew, hey, you're gonna get martyred for your faith by this, by this emperor, I do not believe they would have changed what they said. I think they still would have said, yep, this is what we do. We submit even if it costs us our lives. And I know some of you now, you are hating this, you're struggling with this. And so, so let me give you an exception to this. I think the exception to this statement is um, that we obey every law, whether it's just or unjust, except laws that would force us to stop worshiping or disobey God's word. And there's actual biblical precedent for that too. So let me bring this a little closer to home. I mentioned work. Um, we struggle to submit to bosses, supervisors. We struggle with that. Why? Because we think we're smarter than them. We think we work harder than them. Sometimes you do, and sometimes you are, but not always. And God says we should submit to them, but we struggle. Uh, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes to the church, and he says, hey, here's what submission looks like in the church. And he's talking about mutual submission, how we submit to each other. And what we're talking about with submission is, is this idea that we yield to each other. 
that we don't just try to get our way. We don't just try to run over people. And so he's talking about it in the context of church. And then he says, hey, let me show you what this is like. He says, okay, wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. You should submit to your husband. And then he says, and husbands, you should love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So love your wives sacrificially. And wives, you should love your husbands by submitting to them, by respecting them and honoring them. It doesn't mean you always agree with them. It doesn't even mean you like what they do. It just means you will submit to them and honor them and show them respect. Now, uh, Paul would probably say that even in marriage, there's an air of mutual submission. So in, in our marriage, I submit to Kim in many things. There are things that I yield to her on. And I go, you're smarter than I am in that. And you know better than I do. So I'm gonna yield to you in this area. Um, but, but we live in a relationship of mutual submission. Now, here's the thing. Some of you struggle with submission. You struggle with it at a political level, job level, relationship level, but this is what I know. Where submission is lacking, conflict is abundant. Think about it. Um, Think about social media around politics time. When it's election season, oh man, there are some fights, aren't there? Why? because there's a lack of submission. I won't yield to you. I don't want you to have your way. I wanna show you I'm right. Social media is toxic. Think about your workplace where submission is, is vacant, is gone. Conflict rises, right? There's no submission, but there's lots of conflict. Think about your marriage. If, if your marriage is high conflict, I would ask you, what is the submission level in your marriage? I would bet it's low. Where there's submission lacking, conflict will be abundant. So how do you avoid conflict? Not all conflict is bad. Conflict can be really good. I, I embrace conflict a lot of times because on the other side of conflict is peace. But, but how do we minimize unjust conflict? By submitting mutually to each other. By saying, I might be wrong about this. That's a powerful statement. You should inject that into your, into your vocabulary because it is so helpful. He goes on to say this, verse 15. It's God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Now, some translations will say, it's God's will that your Facebook posts should silence those ignorant people that make foolish accusations against you. Some translations may say, the YouTube videos you share the memes that you post. doesn't say any of that. You know what it says? Your honorable lives. Your honorable lives. I'm gonna live a life that's honorable. How do I do that? By living a life that's based and built on the foundation of Jesus Christ as my cornerstone. I'm gonna submit to people around me. I'm gonna respect the authority in my life. It doesn't mean I, I agree with them. It does not mean I voted for them, but it means I'm gonna respect their office. I'm gonna honor their office. In the same way in your marriage, maybe you go, Mel, I can't honor my husband, he's dishonorable. Okay, well, how about if you honor the office of husband? Honor him in such a way that he lives up to that honor. Love him in such a way, respect him in such a way. And I know this is hard stuff, this isn't easy. I know it. We're talking about suffering, right? This is what it is. 
He goes on to say in verse 16, for you're free, yet you're God's slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God and respect the king. He says, respect everyone. Everyone deserves respect because they're image bearers of God. Then he says, love the family of believers. If they call themselves Christians, whether they are living like it or not, choose to love them. Fear God, respect the king. Again, it does not say unless he's not a good king. See, it says live honorable lives. This is one of the things I've discovered. Honor and submission go hand in hand. If, if I'm struggling to submit to someone, it probably means I'm not honoring them. And if, if I'm struggling to honor someone, it probably means I'm not submitting to them. So I, I do my best to honor my wife. And one of the ways I honor her is by submitting to her. Um, as I submit to her, it helps me honor her better. Um, one of the ways I can be submitted to her is by never dishonoring her. And so I do my best never to dishonor her. There's been a few occasions in our marriage that I've embarrassed her and, and I haven't done it intentionally, but I've realized in those moments that I've dishonored her. But you've, I, I would be willing to, to say, you've never heard me make a joke at my wife's expense uh, from the platform. I've done it a lot off the platform, but from the stage, I never ever make fun of my wife, no. But I don't wanna shame her, I wanna honor her. And that is a way that I can submit myself to her. Uh, And this is one of the things that happens. When we honor people, even if they are not honorable, when we honor the president, even if you didn't vote for him, when we honor the governor, even if you didn't vote for him, we honor that office, it helps our hearts come into submission. And when we submit to people, it it helps us honor them because we see them as humans, not just as uh, a caricature. So honor and submission are important. Verse 18 your slaves, uh, you who are slaves must submit to your master with all respect. So let me pause here real quickly and just say, uh, the Bible does not endorse slavery the way we in America understand uh, historic slavery. So what was present in, uh, in the United States of America and really in much of the world um, in the, the 19th century was, was not condoned by scripture, um, but it was part of the Roman Empire. So it doesn't condone it, but what Paul is doing is speaking to people that are already part of this system. And so many of the people who were considered slaves were actually people who were working off debt and they were considered part of the household many times. So they weren't necessarily abused. In fact, in, in the Roman Empire, um, most, of the, most of the people who were considered slaves or in that class were not actually abused the way we understand slavery in in U.S. culture. So I just want to clarify that for you if, you if you're new to church or new to this. He says, uh, so let me say it again. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they, tell, what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. So think about this in terms of your boss at work. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. If you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased. And then he says this, for God called you to do good even if it means suffering. See, we think we're exempt from doing good or from honoring or from submitting if it costs us something or if it's hard or if it's painful. But Peter says, God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered. 
for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. Then he says in verse 22, he describes how Jesus suffered. He said he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, we are healed. You are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. The challenge today is simple. Will you build your home, your house, on the right foundation? And that foundation is Jesus Christ. Will you walk in the identity that Christ has for you? And that identity is you are a holy royal priest. Or will you keep living beneath the standard that Jesus has for you? I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Colin in Blairsville right now. He's gonna close out our time together and he'll give you a chance to respond. But I want you guys to know, I mean it. I love you more than you know. I am so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. So today is pretty straightforward. We covered a lot of ground, a lot of different. How have I constructed my life? How have I oriented my life? Have I oriented my life around the foundation of Jesus Christ? Or is church just something I do? Is Jesus just a hobby I fit in when I get some time? Or, or is my life built on the foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone that my life is measured up against his, that he is the standard for me, not how I feel, not how comfortable I am, not what I want today, but Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're, you'd consider yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, and you recognize the fact that you struggle with what I was talking through, that identity, you keep going back, you've been purchased out of slavery, but you keep going back to your old life. You keep going back, you're drawn back to old habits old routines, old relationships, old friendships, old mindsets. And I just wanna call you to a higher place today. That you have more kingdom potential than you recognize. It is resident in you and, and Jesus is inviting you to a higher level. So if you would, bow your head, close your eyes, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for loving us like you do. And I don't understand it. I don't understand how you love us. We are so unfaithful. We are so fickle. But God, you love us anyway. So thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that I'm forgiven, that I am accepted, that I am loved when I didn't deserve it. Thank you. When I was a slave to sin, you purchased me from sin by the blood of Jesus. I thank you for that. God, I pray that every person here would walk in the freedom of knowing that they are a son or daughter of God, that they have been adopted into this family, that they have been purchased from slavery and now they've been redeemed. I pray for the people here who are struggling with their identity. They keep going back and forth. I pray that today we would be resolved as a people, corporately and individually, that we are never going back. We're never going to live below the standard that you have for us. That we're gonna walk in the identity as a holy royal priest. 
And we're not gonna play small just because it's more comfortable. That, that every bit of kingdom potential in our lives, God, we invite you to wring it out of us. God, we're gonna do good even if it means suffering. So God, move in us today. Now, with nobody looking around, your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you're here today and you recognize, Mel, Jesus is not really the cornerstone of my life. And maybe you recognized it because the storms came and it wiped out your home. It decimated your life. Maybe you're standing in the rubble of your life and you recognize my house was built on the wrong foundation. There is no condemnation here. There is no shame here. There's an opportunity though. Maybe you're here and you recognize I need to start over. Maybe you're here and you recognize, hey, the storm hasn't come, but I know it's coming and I wanna build my home correctly. I want Jesus to be the foundation of my life. I just would love to pray with you. If you wanna be included in that prayer, to receive Jesus, to, to surrender to his Lordship, I would love to pray for you. And if you wanna be included in that prayer, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? Yeah, thank you, I see you, ma'am. Yeah, thank you, a couple hands in the balcony. Thank you, two, three hands on my left. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, thank you, I see you up in the balcony, ma'am. Thank you on my right, ma'am. Yeah, thank you, ma'am, I see you. Yeah, on my right, you both can put your hands down. Praise the Lord. Anyone else, just a few more seconds, say, Mel, include me in that prayer, it's not too late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you, two hands in the back. I see you, sir, on my right, thank you. Praise the Lord. Romans 10, nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And so we're gonna pray this prayer out loud. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but, but this is your prayer. So you're gonna pray this prayer to God from your heart to him. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your only son, to pay the price for my sins on the cross. From this day forward, my life is surrendered to you. Build my life on the foundation of Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. Help me remember who I am so I never go back to my old life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.